Hey, and welcome back to Grace Talks, a Christian's women's podcast and uh, guest now video and blog that studies the Bible and the women in it and applies it to our modern lives today. This week's Holy Week, and because that's special and exciting and cool, I figured I would do this a little different and exciting and cool and make a video, which is weird for me because I don't even like having to re-listen to my own voice on podcasts, so I don't like having to watch myself record this either, so here we go. And honestly, I wasn't even sure if I was going to make an Easter podcast, not because I didn't want to. I did want to. I wanted to do one with uh, Mary and uh, other stuff and finding him at the tomb and then had the realization that Easter is not about anyone else but Jesus and about what he did. Um, but then I started looking at the beginning of this week and I was getting last minute to doing any of this and I was looking at my to-do list and I was getting a little overwhelmed with everything that was on it. And so then I thought maybe my best course of action would be to just share a really good Easter message that someone else had already created. And you know, what's funny is I was listening to those and found one and it's great. And I mean, I'll probably share them along with this, but finding myself listening to these podcasts just yesterday, I got overwhelmed for another reason. And it wasn't because of my to-do list. God was just really strong in the room yesterday. And even as I was starting thinking about all of this stuff and what I wanted to say, I was just writing down my thoughts in the parking lot in between workouts and practice. And I didn't even know what I was going to say next. And I still don't know everything that I'm going to say next. I just know that Jesus has a lot on my heart lately and a lot on my mind. And I want to share that with people. I want to do more than I've been doing because right now my ministry is small and it's tiny and it feels like a little part of my life. And I'd like it to be the biggest part. I'm not really sure yet how that's going to work or what that's going to look like, but there's something about it that has me really excited and a good kind of overwhelmed. But right now I'm just chilling and I'm wondering what God's will for me is going to look like and what my purpose is going to look like and what my life is going to look like. And I think that's something a lot of people can relate to, whether it's spiritually or maybe you're not the most faith-based person and your faith or your Christianity is more like a hobby or just a piece or a part of yourself. Um, but we're all still striving for a purpose and wondering what life is going to look like and develop into. And we develop this mental picture of what we assume life is going to look like. And we're always working towards that. <laughs> you can see what my in the background. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's kind of crazy because we are going to spend our whole lives planning out the next step of it and then never sit back and appreciate where we are and never look to see who's gotten us there or never even stop to consider what God's done or what he wants for us. Cause I mean, I always say that I trust God and yet I don't, I, I hardly ever consider what his will is for my life. I always just assume that he'll provide what I assume is the next logical step and always assume that he's going to provide this significant other or this particular type of career opportunity because I decided that's what I think I'm going to like best. And that's kind of crazy because half the time I don't even realize what I like until I've experienced it. I didn't even know what career I was wanting until the last couple of years. And while I love what I do and everything I've learned while I'm at university, suddenly I'm realizing that all the skills I've developed have also helped me to start this podcast and could help me do more ministry and outreach and all this rambling is just to say that 
I don't know exactly where my life's going. And I want you to know that you don't have to know where your life is going either. Because this life while we're here is still filled with opportunities of being close to Jesus and bringing others close to him. And also this life is short. It's short lived. We have the rest of eternity to maybe better understand what's going on after this one. We might not always have the opportunity to be surprised. You know, I, I don't know how heaven works. I'm assuming I'll have a little more wisdom, a little more understanding, a little more knowing what's next. Uh, but I, I don't know. But I'm coming to think that maybe I should enjoy this short time while we're on earth where I don't know what's coming next and I get to be surprised. And the only thing that I do know about what's coming next is the eventual transition from earthly body to a spiritual one, a transition between earth and heaven, a transition from being not physically in God's presence to being physically in God's presence. There's a couple people that I've heard just recently talking about like, what do you think happens after death? And they contemplate it with the people around them. And sometimes their answer is, I, I don't know, or I don't think there exists anything after death. And that would be so terrifying to me to think that any minute you could just blink and be done and never have another thought again, never have another experience again, just whisper away like a speck of dust. Everyone wants to feel significant. And if you thought that you were just that speck of dust, how insignificant would you feel? I mean, I, I would understand chasing after all of the short-lived pleasures and desires of the world if I thought that was all I was ever going to get, even if it didn't bring me satisfaction. But knowing what I know, knowing that I'm made in the image of God, knowing what I know about Jesus, I come to find out that it's not that I'm personally significant, but I have God-given value and I'm not a speck of dust. I'm a beloved child of God. But this was only possible because of the Easter story, the story that I know is important to tell. And yet here I was getting distracted and planning on prioritizing school and work and everything else. So I'm taking a pause on that. And I'm going to assume that that was just the enemy's plan to get me distracted and overwhelmed in a bad way and anxious. And instead of worrying that I couldn't put together a good enough message in a short period of time, <laughs> here I am sitting down and relying on God to just give me whatever words I need to say and trusting in him to use me to tell the gospel. And the great thing about the gospel is that it doesn't need some sort of extravagant delivery. It can be analyzed and dissected and you can pull out like a million different messages from it. And those are all great, but the gospel, the story of Easter is miraculous enough. And it says enough in itself and Jesus says enough himself. So I just wanted to read the story of Esther to you and share some of the implications the Bible says that that offers. And I want to encourage you to pray about what it means and what you're thinking about as you go through it. Because when you hear the gospel, we have only a set amount of responses to it. You can have already accepted Jesus and just praise him for what he's done. You're, you're a Christian, you've been a Christian, you get to just be thankful and accept whatever he's teaching you. Um, or you can reject the story as fiction or something you're not interested in, um, which I wouldn't suggest, that's an option. And you can accept, uh, the last one is, or you could accept the love of God for the first time. And then there's always the other response, which is after you've already accepted Jesus and you're praising for what is done, you can do what I'm doing, which is share the story with the people around you. So with all of that being said, uh, let's go ahead and read personally one of my favorite accounts of the gospel because there's four of them 
is Luke. I've, I've always just liked it since I was a little kid. It's a specific preference of mine, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the story of the resurrection a little bit different because they're from different people's perspectives, the same way I tell a story a little bit different than you would tell a story. Um, and yeah, so I'm going to be pulling from Luke, but you could be pulling from any of the Gospels, and I appreciate reading as much of them as you can. So the first part we're going to read is going to be Luke chapter 19, verses 30 through 40, and it says this, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. When he came to near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace and heavy and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees, remember those were kind of the hypocritical, high and mighty religious guys. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He's saying, don't let them say these things about you. That's blasphemy. That's what they're telling to Jesus. But Jesus says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. He's saying creation is going to sing my praise. What I say to these people, it doesn't matter. If they didn't praise me, the world around would praise me. The inanimate would praise me. And so, I mean, the Pharisees didn't like that. They haven't liked Jesus this whole time. He's disrupting what's going on in the world. And then Jesus is about to make it a little more disruptive because after he's in this town and he's made it in there, in verses 45 through 48, he does this. It says, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all of the people hung on his words. Um, in other versions of the gospel as well, Jesus is straight up flipping tables. Like he comes through and he's like, how dare you do this to my father's house? And he flips tables. So he's saying out, he's saying these, what at the time would have been outrageous things. And then he's also being... Uh, passionate in what he's doing. He's defending his father's house, which is God's, because he is the son of God. So he's making these statements about what he expects from the people and how he wants to be worshipped and the fact that he is to be worshipped. Because up until this point, he's really come across as a teacher just saying really confusing things to some people and performing miracles and kind of hinting. And now he's really leading up and being straightforward about more who he is. So he goes through and he tells a lot more of these confusing parables things that we understand are things that he explains to the disciples but that don't completely make sense to all the people around him but they're stunned they're hanging on his words they're soaking up the wisdom that he offers even if they don't understand everything and then we get to chapter 22 which is really the start of the easter story so it reads like this we'll go ahead and read all of chapter 22 23 um and i'm pretty sure 24 so sit tight <laughs> Um, it said, now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the 12, 
one of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So knowing this, before we read the rest, the Passover is something that they started celebrating after Exodus, which if you're looking at the Bible, we're, oh, it's over here. We're like all the way over here and Exodus is way back here. So they've been celebrating the Passover for a long time. And the main thing that you need to know about the Passover, you might've already heard it if you listened to my story about the women in Moses, but Jesus at one point spares, or not Jesus, God spares his people if they have sacrificed a lamb and they've placed blood over the door of their houses. So they sacrifice an innocent lamb and it saved their firstborns from this angel of death that was going to sweep over Egypt. So just keeping that in mind and what the Passover symbolizes is innocent lamb, sacrifice, the blood, all that good stuff saves his people. Um, and then also keeping in mind that Judas is the one that is a follower and a disciple of Jesus. And he has sold out Jesus in advance for some money. Okay. Reading on in verse seven. Um, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffered. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. For taking, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I will tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. So the son of man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He points all that stuff out, as he often does, to say, why are you arguing among who might be the worst or who might be the greatest when you're saying all of these things amongst yourselves when I'm the greatest and I'm sitting right here serving you? So he's just pointing out that the greatest is the servant. 
And then he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching fulfillment. The disciples said, see here, Lord, there are two swords. And he said, that's enough. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When Jesus's followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priests. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. It took bravery for Peter to be put in that position in the first place. It took bravery for him to go out on a limb and follow Jesus in these things. But Peter was overconfident in himself and how he was going to handle that situation. Um, and so he made the mistake. He did deny him. He did what Jesus said he would. Peter was imperfect, but he was definitely passionate about Jesus. And so it's sad because you see that he really wanted to do something with that and didn't and so he goes outside and he weeps bitterly and he's having to face all of this scary things which is his teacher being taken in by these guards and him not having been able to stand up for it he'll have a very important future he's a, he's a great man but it's important to realize that even his closest disciples 
made mistakes. But then seeing this, Peter leaves and Jesus is still in this courtyard. He's surrounded by guards. It says that the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded prophecy. Who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priest and the teachers of the law met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. So he's basically being accused of blasphemy. It says now, because we're starting chapter 23, then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, a king, looking at what they're holding against him because they want something to stand up in Roman government. They lie. They say he opposes payment to Caesar. She doesn't. There's an earlier story. He doesn't. He says, given to Caesar, the thing that are Caesar's and the thing that are God's gods. Um, and then they also say he claims to be the Messiah. She does. A king, when they say that, they're trying to make it political. They're trying to make him look like a threat to the Roman Empire. So then Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and then came all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time, he had been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there uh, accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. They dressed him in an elegant robe, and then they sent him back to Pilate. The day Herod and Pilate, that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. So in this case, Herod was treating him as a joke, as some kind of spectacle, as if he was a magician and didn't matter. And so his, Jesus's response to him was simply silence. So then moving on to verse 13, it says, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and I found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the, for the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with the shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. 
So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Looking at this as kind of a foreshadowing into our lives and Jesus's lives and the sacrifice that he makes, because maybe you don't really relate to uh, a bit of an anarchist and a murderer, Barabbas, but all of us in some way are guilty of some kind of sin or of some kind of shortcoming enough that we don't deserve heaven. We don't. We don't deserve to be freed. And as you can see, Jesus takes the place of the sinful man. He takes the place of Barabbas and he takes our place as well. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Serene, not the same Simon that's Peter, it's a different man. Simon from Serene, who was on his way in from the country, and they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Understanding what crucifixion is is one of the things that makes the story make sense and points out the gruesomeness of it. It was these big nails and a big wooden cross. And after having been whipped to the point where skin would have been falling off of your back and after having a, doesn't really mention it, a crown of thorns placed on his head and mocked and spit on um, and beat up, you would have been actually nailed to the wood on the cross. And you would be stuck there in that position until eventually you couldn't hold yourself up anymore and um, you couldn't breathe anymore or you bled out or whatever combination it was that um, slowly killed you. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And he's saying that to the people who literally are crucifying him and placing up his cross. He's saying, Father, he's calling out to God and not asking him to curse them, but to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant. And then the guards divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him, at Jesus. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. A reminder that no one's ever too far gone to be saved. This man was hanging on a cross for his crimes, likely justly. And Jesus could forgive him that easily.
And then it continue, continues on verse 44, it says, it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So something that's really powerful in all of that is looking at the curtain of the temple. For reference of what this is, the curtain of the temple was blocking people from the tabernacle, which was considered to hold on to the presence of God. It not, not as some kind of page, not as something that captured them in there, but it was just that God's presence was in this tabernacle. And there was this thing where now and again to try and relieve people's sins, man would make a sacrifice. There's all these things. It was really complicated, old law kind of stuff. And I'm not going to confuse everybody with it now, but basically, no, God's presence was in this, in this piece of not furniture, but this holy and sacred box, basically, for a modern term of it. And it held inside of it the Ten Commandments and a couple other things. And it was just where people would go to actually be in God's presence, but only one person could go in there. It was an every so often kind of thing. It was a priest. It was a very particular set of rules to be able to get in contact with this little box. And you had to pass through a veil. You had to pass through these hanging, some sort of linen, some sort of curtain that was in between it. And only one person could go in. You would ask for forgiveness from God in that presence. And then you would exit and it would stay behind this curtain. And so what's powerful is, is as Jesus dies, as darkness is on this land, that curtain at the temple was torn in two. It was symbolizing what Jesus' death was doing. It was, sorry, my cat's meowing. <laughs> it was symbolizing that there didn't have to be a curtain between us and God's presence anymore. And, and we'll see why soon, but that curtain torn in two meant that we didn't have to depend on one person to go in between us to ask for forgiveness to God. We didn't have to be separated by anything to reach out to him. So now after all of this happens in verse 50, it says, now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the, Jude the Judean town of Arimathea and he himself, I don't know if I pronounced that right, by the way. And he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus's body. Then they took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emos. Don't know that pronunciation either. Remember, this is a not well-prepared podcast. <laughs> but Emos was about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in the word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not, the Messiah, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Keep in mind, they don't realize it's Jesus at this moment in time. They just think it's this different man. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when it, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. 
everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the, the vicinity, vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And then that begins the rest of what they were commissioned to do, which is spread the gospel to the rest of the nations, this story that they had lived through. So I know that this was a lot of reading of the Bible, but it's, it's the best part of it. Because of everything that Jesus endured, we don't have to. <laughs> Before he came, there was more than just a curtain separating us and God. I've talked about Adam and Eve. They got to walk physically in the presence of Jesus in a utopia, in a paradise, in Eden. And then sin entered the world and separated us from God. The two biggest traits of God is number one, that he is just and holy. And number two, that he is perfectly loving. And so when sin enters the world and sin becomes a part of us and we're not perfect, we don't get to be in God's, in God's presence. That, that isn't something that we deserve. It's not something that we can possibly earn because we're imperfect people. It's how we are. And so the world went for centuries and millennia without getting to be in the presence of God, without having direct contact with him except for a few prophets. And prophets didn't exactly have the easiest lives usually. But along with God being perfect and just, he is perfectly loving. And perfectly good, which meant that he always had a plan to be able to give us the opportunity and the free will to choose him and to reconcile ourselves with him again, even with sin in the world, even with being imperfect. And that came in the form of Jesus, that came with Jesus being willing to be perfect and tempted and facing all of the temptations and not making the same mistakes that we do. And being willing to be in that garden, knowing what was coming for him and saying, God, I don't want this because he was human while he was here. I don't want this. If there's any other way, please let it happen. But not my will, yours be done. And Jesus was willing to say that and to love us and to love us even as he hung on a cross and saying, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And so we get to reap the benefit of a relationship with a perfectly loving God, a God who endured sacrificial love. Jesus gave up his life. God gave up his son and he freely gives us his spirit. And it's not something demanded of us, which wouldn't be love, but he gives us the beautiful freedom of choice. He gives us the choice to surrender to Jesus and the surrender and submission to Jesus is such a blessing because it means that Suddenly, we're not in charge of our own lives anymore. We're not in charge of our own pasts or our own futures or our own presence. We don't have to 
worry about all of the big scary things that happen in this world because we're not specks of dust. We are beloved children of God. And even though we're undeserving of the love, he doesn't love us any less and he doesn't find any less value in us, even when we've made a thousand mistakes, even when we remake the same mistakes because we're lucky enough to have been born into existence in a world with a God who values us and who cared and loved about us enough to send his son to face something so awful, but to offer also offer us hope and vacuum cleaners. <laughs> Like I said, this was not a well-planned podcast at all. But the point of the gospel isn't to be an extravagant speaker. And the point of the gospel isn't to do something perfect. The point of the gospel is to tell you that Jesus did something perfect. And that because of what he's done, I get to know that I'm loved. And I get to trust him with my life. And I get to count on him for every time. I mess up and make mistakes or get scared or have fear or anxiety or anything else because there's a lot of that in this world. But I get to have the hope of knowing where I'm going, of knowing that I get to be with a God who cares so much and loves so much and rejoices every time one of his lost people returns back to him. So that's the Easter story. That's the gospel. And... (laughs) you participated in hearing about the whole thing so um i hope that you get a chance to watch this early on in the week so that when thursday passes you're thinking about the last supper you're thinking about the breaking of the bread and the pouring of his wine that is considered his broken body and is considered his poured out blood all that's been used as to save us that's what is called communion and it's what we take in church it's what we can do in the privacy of our own homes and it's just a as he said it's to remember him it's to remember his sacrifice and it's something that believers can do and celebrate and praise God for what he's done and then I hope when Friday comes along you'll be thinking of the sacrifice that Jesus made and of what he went through and what he endured and on Saturday if you're in a spot in your life or maybe you can relate to this of feeling like God is silent or you're at an in-between and you don't know what's coming next and maybe life is a little scary. Maybe you can relate to the people that knew Jesus and believed him to be the Messiah and he dies and they don't know what's coming next. I hope you think of them on Saturday. And then on Sunday, I hope you have the opportunity to, in some way, shape or form, safely either attend church or enjoy a sermon with your family and celebrate celebrate what easter means celebrate that he is risen that jesus conquered death he conquered everything he won the victory is his and he passes that on to us and then i hope you have the opportunity to share the story with someone new who doesn't know jesus or who doesn't understand who he really is but that's really all I have for today um so yeah uh (laughs) 
that, that's it. Next week, I'm going to be getting back into talking about Esther. And I really hope to see all of y'all then. Uh, let me know what y'all think of the video. I can always try and do it a little bit more in the future. So yeah, if you had any questions, please feel free to reach out. I am more than happy to speak with anyone about any of this, about the Bible, about the people in the Bible, about God, gospel, or anything. As per usual, just a reminder that I love you. God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to give you eternal life. I'm sure Jazz loves you. <laughs> you are important. You have purpose and you have worth. So I'm signing off. Bye.